Bob Murphy Show, episode 95. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show and this one, we're going to be interviewing Tarek Haddad. He is the reporter who recently resigned from Newsweek. So you may have heard allusions to this on Twitter and so forth. So what's going on is there are a lot of revelations coming out that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW, the UN-backed uh, board that sends out investigators to go see, for example, in Syria, was there really uh, a chemical weapons attack from Assad's government? So this organization goes out and it certainly appears as if the U.S. authorities pressured this U.N. committee to give a misleading or perhaps outright false report on what happened. All right, so that was the story. And uh, Tarek said that Newsweek wasn't letting him run that story, and so he eventually resigned. And so we're going to be talking with him primarily about that story, but then, of course, more generally, his views on the uh, way that the the narrative is controlled and so forth. And so I think it's it's a a very interesting and timely discussion. Let me just mention that um, Tarek, he trained with the Press Association. He had various placements at regional and national news outlets, uh, he says he's since worked at the Hull Daily Mail, the International Business Times UK, and then, of course, at Newsweek. And now he's independent and starting a podcast and so on. And we'll talk about that stuff at the end of the interview. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Tarek Haddad. Well, Tarek, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Pleasure. So um, I, I think the first thing we should do just as a public service is mm-hmm. have you, and this is actually how I came to invite you to be on the show, is I put out a call when I saw that the OPCW, like another round of leaks was being published by WikiLeaks on that. And, um, you know, they're saying, wow, this is even worse than we realized. I, I knew at that point, okay, I have to do something, an episode on this. And then I put out mm-hmm. to my Twitter followers, who do I get? And someone said, hey, this guy who just, had to resign from Newsweek on this stuff, get him on. And I thought, oh, he's not mm-hmm. and, and here you are. <laughs> so we're very glad to have you here. So Thank in you. your capacity, yeah, if you could just, like, first of all, define what does OPCWs even stand for? What is that organization sure. supposed to be doing? And then, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I'll maybe stop you and ask for clarification, you know, knowing that the audience might not know some of this inside details. That sounds perfect. So the OPCW is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. So it's essentially an extension of, um, well, it's a a body that's an extension of the United Nations that is supposed to independently police use of chemical weapons in international warfare. So it's something that's grown out of the Geneva Conventions and all the other kind of chemical weapons conventions that um, have arisen. So, you know, obviously, I'm sure people are aware of the history of the UN. But um, so I think the um, OPCW was set up 
I have to check this, don't quote me, but I think it was set up in the late 90s, maybe 97. Okay. Um, well, that's, yeah, that's when the, some of the conventions started to come out anyway, about, specifically relating to chemical weapon use. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so that body's essentially supposed to be an independent investigator of chemical weapons attacks. And yeah, so okay, so would you like me to go from there? <laughs> well, so um, with respect to you know treaties and things that countries have mm-hmm. signed, saying hey, we're not going to use these types of weapons, at least in mm-hmm. international warfare. And say, I don't know if this is on your radar, but that was something with the United States under the Bill Clinton administration. The mm-hmm. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms attacked this religious compound in Waco, Texas, and the allegations were they used chemical weapons that were banned in international warfare. But since it was an internal thing, hey, that's fine. So I'm I'm wondering on so on this one so the the OPCW is the thing where when countries are accused of possibly violating you know these things they've signed that's how the UN says well we're going to send this group in and they're going to get to the bottom of this and tell us hmm. what happened. Yes, exactly. Okay, so then of course this is now relevant with respect to the allegations that the Syrian government used chemical weapons. So can you tell us you know what what the what the standard narrative was in the media and then why? There were problems originally and then how how that's unfolded? Mm -hmm, Sure. So I think this fits into a much broader perspective or kind of history. But um, essentially, and, you know, excuse me if I sound a little bit cynical, but um, the, the Syrian government and the Assad government were essentially very early on. There was a, a direct, you know, a very strong propaganda effort to kind of label them as, you know, the regime, dictatorships, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and that's obviously not to excuse any of the sort of terrible things that have done. You know, there are instances of human rights abuse in Syria's past. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it lacks context, actually, because, you know, Syria actually was a fairly democratic country. It was a place where there were multiple religions and they could coexist. It was actually, you know, considered to be one of the Middle East's more open and tolerant societies in other countries because I, I grew up in Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the common feeling among Arab countries was actually, you know, everyone looked favorably on Syria. They respected how much freedom they had. Um, and also what's kind of often missed out is that it's got a very, very rich and beautiful history of, you know, I think some people will be familiar with um, the bombings that took place in Palmyra, kind of UNESCO heritage sites. Mm-hmm. You know, great things that, that trace their way back in, um, a long time in civilization. But anyway, so that we had this very early effort to, um, you know, as you typically see in the media, to to start um, demonizing countries or, or leaders that we essentially want to go to war with for fairly dubious reasons, I believe. And so this chemical weapons attack was um, the one in question we're talking about today, which was in Duma, which was in April in 2018. It was probably, the th- I think it was the third relatively, or like fairly well-documented chemical weapons attack or that was reported on the media. Mm-hmm. There was one in eastern Ghouta uh, and then in Khan Sheikhoun. And then uh, Duma was the most latest, uh, the latest incident. So what's interesting to know is actually that and this has not been reported as as much as the other things, is actually there's signs of foul play in all three of these chemical weapons attacks, um, or alleged chemical weapons attacks, I should say. Um, Specifically with Duma, I guess that's... um, So obviously April 2018, it was the kind of typical response that you see in in the Western media where, and something that I try to push back against as much as I can in in my career, is that you have an official line that comes out from a government and, you know, everyone unquestioningly believes it. 
So in this instance, it was the um, the French representative to the United Nations Security Council. Mm-hmm. Three days after the attack, it was said that you know there was evidence of chlorine being used according to French intelligence officials, and you know much to my anger, uh, that was essentially printed in the entirety of the world's media without a single person asking for, is it possible potentially to have a little bit of evidence that uh, right. justifies this claim? Uh, and because I'm, a, I'm very aware of the history of propaganda, and it was something I studied in, intensely before I became a journalist, I was, you know, even I was already aware that this was likely to be, you know, some some deception going on here. But I, I did write a piece that, well, not in this attack, in, in the early attack of Kanche Kuhn to ask for independent investigations from the OPCW. Mm-hmm. So this is something that happened with this attack in, in Duma. There was investigators were tasked with going out. Obviously, with a situation like Syria, it takes it can take a long time for the investigators to get to a specific site because it's, you know, you're in a war zone and right. very, very uh, kind of remote and difficult areas to reach. So... And there was a team of eight, and I think eight or nine scientists that, from the OTW um, that went out, uh, you know, tried to do the things that they would normally do. So collecting uh, skin samples and dirt samples and kind of scratching things off the walls and, you know, that kind of thing to try and collect evidence. From there, one of the lead investigators is Ian Henderson, who is a ballistics expert from South Africa. He raised significant concerns about essentially what he found. Um, the main things that he discovered was actually there was trace levels of chlorine, so no different than chlorine that's normally in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the chemistry is a little bit more complicated than that, and we can get into that if you wish, but um, essentially there was no no chlorine found. Um, he found that the two canisters that they examined were likely tampered with, and, you know, they believed that they probably didn't come from an aircraft, which is what the final OPCW report said. I actually learned very recently, and it's it's almost ridiculous, that um, the holes in the roof where the canisters were found were actually smaller than the canisters, which I actually, I don't know how I, can, how I missed that, but that's kind of a, a staggering thing, isn't it? Um, but anyway, so there's... Can, can I, let me, let me just, yeah. so the... The two possible things of what could have happened are, or the, I guess there's all kinds of stuff that could have happened, but mm. the the two main competing narratives are Assad's government deliberately used a like chlorine gas. Yeah. Is that, is that yes. the right? Was that the right? Right. Chlorine gas. Yeah. That was dropped from canisters out of airplanes, yeah. so it would have smashed through the roof of a building and released. And of course, the chlorine levels in the immediate vicinity would be way higher than normal background levels, and so yeah. the people on the OPCW team now are communicating to the world, perhaps via WikiLeaks, that they actually know that we when we measured it, the chlorine levels weren't any higher than you would have normally expected for this area. And you know what? The holes in the roof were smaller than the... So that makes it look like someone deliberately staged it to... For propaganda purposes. Right. Can you... Mm-hmm. Um, so just as far as the timeline, though, like this, mm-hmm. these, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. like you're this saying the, these concerns by like the lead investigator, did that did that not start trickling out until after the official report was released? Exactly. So okay. um, what essentially happened is this investigator wrote up his report, sent it to management. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the samples were sent to the UK and then 
examined. Mm. Again, they didn't find anything that was conclusive, but um, again, that wasn't represented in the final report. Uh, there's a report by a former Guardian journalist um, which lays this all out, so I'd, I'd recommend your listeners t- to find that. Sure, yeah, we'll it's definitely. On, yeah, we'll it's on Counterpunch. Okay. So it's Jonathan Steele uh, yeah. on Counterpunch, OPCW. I'm sure you'll find it. Sure. But um, essentially what he reports is happening, and according to speaking with some of these whistleblowers, is that um, I think three days before the final publication came out, there were three intelligence officials from the United States that uh, were in a meeting, a high-level meeting at the OPCW. Again, you have to remember this is supposedly an independent body, and sure. it shouldn't be having any any interference, uh, they were there to essentially say that this has to be pinned on Assad. So what happened from there is obviously these scientists will have spent a long time in this in in this body and the, you know they, it takes them a long time to reach this point in their in their career so they're not the types of people that are just going to go straight to wikileaks and right. so for about a year they essentially tried to raise these concerns internally of how certain protocols were dismissed and how their findings were not um you know taken so, so seriously just, just for clarity for people who aren't follow- so the the concern is or the issue is the OPCW released a report that did like what did it say a hundred percent or it just it you know what was the language of that final report in terms of saying yes Assad did this yeah so the main differences were was that it said that chlorine was in you know likely used or in high probability it didn't it didn't quite say explicitly that it was used but uh, it it you know gave the impression that chlorine was present when it hadn't been Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that it said that the canisters were dropped by aircraft, which, again, the investig- they didn't say explicitly that they, they hadn't been dropped by aircraft, but they just raised significant mm-hmm. concerns. Now, that point is significant because to say that it came from an aircraft essentially is the mechanism that points the finger at Assad because the right. OPCW can't actually, in their jurisdiction, it's not their job to say who was responsible. Right. They just say, this is what took place, and we believe it's under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that detail was added to ensure that you know, blame was right. then pointed right. to Assad. Okay, so, so, so in those, terms of the timeline, like mm-hmm. when, so internally, these, the, the people that were actually on the team mm-hmm. that got this, are, are, after they see the final report that gets released, they're, you know, going through their normal channels of command and saying, hey, that that's actually misrepresenting what we turned in. How did that happen? And that, like, the world's getting the wrong exactly. idea of what happened. Exactly. From, okay. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not, I can't remember the date that the first WikiLeaks documents came out, but I believe it was maybe sort of late September, early November last year. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so also there's a new um, institution called the Courage Foundation, which is to promote public whistleblowing about these these things. So one of the, I think, well, now we have two whistleblowers from the organization, but one of the whistleblowers attended a kind of a private conference there with some uh, independent journalists. And this is when these issues started to come out. And then WikiLeaks was also given internal these internal documents, which they've released in batches. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I mean, how serious of an issue, like, is, is it a fair summary to say there are at least two whistleblowers that were on the mm-hmm. team on the ground that mm-hmm. 
like, do we know their identities or are they still just anonymous people? So one person is called Ian Henderson, which I've uh-huh. named. Yep. The other person has only been identified as Alex, but that's just um, kind of a, he's essentially, he's, he's not revealing his identity and I, I don't blame him. Um, right, right, I don't know okay. if your listeners will be aware, but um, in the UK, and you'd think it's a fairly civilized country, but just to put these things into perspective, there we had a British weapons inspector that raised concerns about the weapons of mass destruction. Um, and he was found dead, you know, in his home two days after. And, and there was considerable evidence of foul play. His name was David Kelly, if anyone's... You're, you're talking with respect uh, to the Iraq invasion? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So there was, you know, this high, high level, you know, British diplomat and, or, you know, in scientist. Uh, um, it wasn't with the OPCW at the time, but... Um, you know, with relationships to the British government, the United Nations, right. you know, really top level guy. He he raised concerns and, um, yeah, I, I can't remember the specifics, but uh, he was in his home in, in the countryside and then, uh, you know, was found dead um, just yeah. in under very mysterious circumstances. Yeah, we, we are, my, yeah, my listeners are familiar, you know, there's, there's lots of things like that where, yeah. <laughs> geez, all these people just keep dying, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as, as far as so the the takeaway from this then is that this ostensibly official process by which hey let's let the international community investigate these charges and hey we sent in the the unbiased disinterested team from the UN and look at this report mm-hmm. Assad pretty you know we're pretty sure he did it the actual invest at least two of the people on the team are coming forward and saying that's not what we turned in they mm-hmm. they changed it to give a much more to make it look like yeah. it was much more likely he did it. And also, just to put a little yeah. bit more, um, this has not been publicly made available yet, but um, I'm aware that there is a memorandum of protest that has been signed by 20 scientists within the organization, which also raises these concerns and right. just kind of procedural issues. Mm-hmm. So there is 20, I believe. I mean, it, I can't, it's not on the record yet, but it right, will right. be shortly, yeah. I believe. Okay. Well, okay. So that, so that's just, you know, bringing the listeners up to speed on, mm-hmm. on what's happened. And then it's, and it was recently, like just within the last two weeks, right? That there was another dump. I mean, I know you refer to it, but yeah. just so people know the timing, why this yeah, yeah, yeah. is still it a non-going developing story. Yeah. Okay. Hey, boys and girls, you're invited to the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th to 24th, departing from sunny Miami. The Contra Cruise, of course, is always enjoyable, kids, but you don't want to miss this year because of the roast of Dave Smith. Now, believe it or not, folks, Tom Woods is actually not half bad. But Bob is the master of the roast. He is, he's tremendous, and it would have been wonderful to, to have him here, but he had to stay home practicing the pronunciation of the word nuclear. Good one, Tom. Why couldn't you be more like that on social media? Now let's see if Bob had anything up his sleeve when it came to Tom. All I'm saying, look, 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 folks, folks, folks. All I'm saying is, Tom, Tom, all I'm saying is that when you were in high school, if a kid on the football team said you were part of the loser brigade, that's just weird. That's all I'm saying. Just saying it's weird. Tom, what those kids did to you back then, it, it, it was wrong. It was wrong. But you need to let it go. Ooh, good one, Bob. Of course, the big standoff last time was when Bob went head-to-head with Dave Smith. Get him, Bob. Hey, did you guys, I mean, Dave's show is really good, right? Part of the problem when you guys listen to it. Yeah, yeah, of course you do, of course you do. Great show, great show. Did you guys know that um, 
Dave actually has a sidekick, a co-host, if you will. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> Robbie the Fire, he's like a, a sidekick who doesn't get to talk very much. He, he's the Tonto of podcasting, folks. Really cool character. You get to hear three words per episode. <laughs> Ouch. I hope Dave has some thick skin. But Dave wasn't done yet. He swung back and swung back hard. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are like, oh, maybe that's just because he's lazy. No. No. Bob Murphy is such a good Misesian that he understands that even sitting on his fat ass is, in fact, action. Yikes. Better luck next time, Dave. Also, we'll be joined by special guest Ludwig von Mises, who will also participate in the roast. Listen to the podcast. But seeking to answer the question... Why is Dave Smith so bad, you know? In what consists the poverty of his podcast? So remember, kids, it's the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th through 24th, departing from Miami on Royal Caribbean. For more details, go to ContraCruise.com. So now I want to pivot and then say, okay, so that's one part of the story. Like, wow, look at mm -hmm. this. It looks like this UN body has been corrupted, or, or at least that's a, mm -hmm. a serious possibility. A and, yeah, and we, we should be looking, yeah. yeah, we should be looking at this. And yet, Western media, like, if it weren't for the social media and me getting links to alternative media websites, I would have no idea this was even a thing. Exactly. And so now here's something that you have personal experience with. So just to sort of introduce this topic to the listeners. Clearly, mm -hmm. people who follow the news, it seems like there are certain things that are just, there's a, a media blackout, or at least like the major corporate mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so now what I loved about your essay, of course, we'll link to this, folks. It's bobmurphyshow.com slash 95, is you gave a pretty specific theory as to how this blackout is actually implemented so mm -hmm. probably, you know, people like stories. So I don't know, this, with whatever detail you want, you want to just tell your story about how did you start working for Newsweek and then the development of things there? Sure. Um, I mean, I can just maybe give a little bit further background. Sure. So I, um, I studied finance in upstate New York, and then I grew up in Jersey, which is a channel in the, a channel, uh, an island in the United Kingdom, but it's essentially an offshore tax haven. Um, mm -hmm. So just to avoid country. confusing the listeners, so you were in the United States in upstate New York. Was it, yes. was it Binghamton? Is that, Binghamton, yeah. Okay, yeah, I actually grew up in Rochester. Okay. Oh, okay. And, and then, but now when you're saying you then you went to Jersey, you don't mean New Jersey, you mean... New, not New Jersey, okay. yeah. There's an island in the United Kingdom okay. called Jersey. It's very small. It's where New Jersey comes from. Gotcha. Um, okay. there, anyway, but um, yeah, there's a kind of offshore tax center there, which is very similar to what you have in the US with the Cayman Islands or Bermuda. Mm -hmm. So essentially, uh, corporations and wealthy people will domicile their earnings there to avoid paying taxes. So I worked in that industry for two years, decided that um, I started to kind of learn about this tax evasion, which was happening at the same time as it was kind of after the financial crash with um, austerity and public funding for a lot of things being cut. So I, I felt very kind of peeved off about that because it just mm -hmm. seems so corrupt of our politicians telling us we don't have enough money to pay for these services at the same time. I, I knew from the documents that I'd seen there was they were fully aware of how these 
uh, tax regimes operated and mm. how, you know, so um, I decided to train to become a journalist. I trained with the Press Association, which is the UK's equivalent of uh, the Associated Press, so the wire service. Worked at a local newspaper for about a year work, and then kind of made it through up the ranks to International Business Times, um, which is actually the sister organization or was the sister organization at Newsweek. Obviously, like I mentioned, strong interest in propaganda, foreign affairs, my Arabic background. So I was, you know, very frequently writing about politics and Syria and, and foreign affairs in general. Uh, in 2016, I left IB Times because um, they were using essentially a clickbait model of journalism that was mm. failing. And I was just generally very frustrated with the industry because um, I wanted to write these really, what I felt were really important pieces about Syria or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was often kind of told, we're not really interested in this. Can you write about this cat jumping on a trampoline? Cause it will get 2 million right. views on, on something. Right. Um, so I was having to write about things that I didn't really care about. So I, I went off and, and tried to write a book for two years and then in September of this year, I, I returned to Newsweek. Um, mostly, I mean, I interviewed and I applied formally, but I, I had, you know, long running connections with some of the editors there. Mm-hmm. And I say all this because it's actually, it's a little bit relevant because, you know, throughout my journalism career, I had a, you know, fairly decent reputation with all the editors. I never had, never had problems with anyone. It was only when I, I started to try and report on these, um, essentially, or anything, any time I tried to report on anything that was damaging to U.S. military interests, I was attacked um, and I, I was smeared and, you know, I was I was heavily criticized by my editors, but it was done in a very sort of underhand way um, that kind of didn't take my concerns seriously about the actual story and just said, you know, try to... Mis- misalign my my history and my reporting mm-hmm. past, which people can look at. It's all, it's all available mm-hmm. online. If they want to find any errors in my reporting, they, they feel free to do so. Um, but so, yeah, I guess in in late November, I um, obviously, um, just to put things a little bit in, in context, I'm, I'm aware of the media landscape and how certain things are difficult to discuss. Mm-hmm. I felt that and, you know, I, I have occasionally censored myself to kind of, you know, you don't really want to step out of line, unfortunately, but I always try to kind of give the truth as much as I can and hopefully right. sophisticated readers can kind of read between the lines. But um, this is kind of towards the end of this year, um, I felt like a line had been crossed in the kind of the media because we had a, a journalist here in the UK called Peter Hitchens who um, published a story in the Mail on Sunday. Um, which essentially was uh, the leaked letter from the OCW scientist Ian Henderson mm-hmm. that raised these concerns to internal management. So he published that report. The letter was then verified by Reuters. And for those that aren't aware, Reuters is, you know, the kind of gold standard of mm-hmm. of journalism. If something's in Reuters, it's kind of a free pass for everyone to right. to go ahead and <laughs> write about it. You know, despite these things, my editor's, told me that we couldn't essentially touch the story. And as I kind of pushed... It, it, can I... Uh, I thought that... Yeah. And so, folks, again, I encourage you to read a Tarek's... You know, he's got a, a blow-by-blow account of it, and we'll link to it at bobmurphyshow.com slash 95. But what I liked was they... Originally, they were saying... I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. look at these other major organizations like the New York Times aren't touching this story. They have mm-hmm. far more expertise on foreign policy than we at Newsweek, so... 
mm-hmm. it would, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for us to be dealing with it. So I thought that, right, am yeah. I correct that that was one of the reasons they gave you? Of course, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I guess just to put a little, little bit more in perspective because this is important is the first thing that was attempted was to smear the publication and the reporter that it came from. Mm-hmm. So the Mail on Sunday here is, um, or the Daily Mail is, is usually considered a right wing publication. Mm-hmm. And obviously some of your uh, listeners will be aware of like Mail Online and those kind of things. So what's important to understand is that the Mail Online is the kind of the web arm of of the Daily Mail. And it's actually very separate from their newsroom operations. They have different editors, different reporters. The newspaper, which is still in print and it's the UK's biggest newspaper, still has very solid levels of journalism in terms of how it's produced the mail on online we can have a slightly different conversation it's, right. it's um, a little bit more cowboy and clickbaity and can be a bit more uh, inaccurate but the, the newspaper itself is very solid and then peter hitchens who's the um, the reporter that wrote this story he's been an opinion columnist and again right wing or conservative and to i guess a considerable number of the liberal establishment he's kind of you know very considered incendiary or offensive Mm. which i think is 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 a little bit unfair to him um even though i don't agree with everything he says he's he's um from my experiences with him or or seeing his videos he's a a deeply honest person Mm. um and you know it's it's very kind of typical in this environment where uh, left and right just can't seem to talk to each other at all. It's you know that right. each side is looks at the other as complete um, monster. Without right. you're, you're either a communist or you're Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and this is, I think, one of the biggest problems in America right now. To be honest with you. Yeah. But yeah, so they try to kind of smear. You know, this is a not a respected publication. He's not. But the thing about Peter okay, Hitchens, just so I can understand. So mm-hmm. while you're arguing with your editor or editors at Newsweek, like this is an important story, and your mm-hmm. main thing was look at Peter Hitchens over at the Mail mm-hmm. broke it. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of mainstream press, yeah, this is the you know the head of the OPCW. This isn't some you know guy getting coffee. This is a big deal. And then they're saying, yeah. well, no, because the only people that have covered this so far is this right winger. Yeah, over here, like Breitbart kind of news. You know, we're not we're not going to sully our good name by linking to something. That, that's the yeah. pushback they're giving you. Sure, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's not even accurate though because right. um, then they're not Breitbart, and even right. you know, there are they are a respected newspaper here in sure. the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just very nice. It's it's the typical thing that's done when mm-hmm. someone tries to tell the truth. You just attack their character essentially. Sure. Um, so I, I kind of pushed back against this. I said all the things I've just told you is to respect right. a newspaper. Peter Hitchens was a before he was an opinion columnist. He was a, a journalist for twenty years um, for a variety of British newspapers. He was a Moscow, um, you know, correspondent and a Washington bureau uh, correspondent. So, you know, he's had experience with foreign affairs at a very high level. It's not like he's just kind of decided to get up off his armchair from writing opinion columns to thinking he can write about. You know, he's got he's got experience in writing important stories. After that, after I, you know, pushed back against those things, I was then given a Bellingcat article, um, mm-hmm. which kind of refuted the things that the OPCW um or the the leaks or the le- what the letter showed. How familiar are you with Bellingcat? And- I was gonna say to you, I had never heard it before your piece, so mm-hmm. I'm sure many of my listeners also, if you could just tell us what that is. Of course, yeah. So this is 
I think one of the most important things to, for people to try and understand at the moment is that Bellingcat and others like it are essentially a propaganda arm of US military interests. If you see any news coverage or even movies or how it's kind of portrayed in, in wider culture, um, they are represented as the complete opposite of that. So the kind of the mainstream or the commonly held belief among people is that they're this gung-ho team of investigative journalists that have just kind of popped up from someone's bedroom, um, you know, that they really cared about Syria and they, you know, started looking at YouTube clips and Google Maps images and then they started to kind of develop techniques to um, kind of solve these very, very complicated and deeply, um, you know, deeply complicated issues. And apparently, you know, this is what was staggering is that this team, or it started off as one guy, you know, he was able to solve these things that, you know, major news corporations couldn't solve. So in their history up to now, they've they've written things about several chemical weapons attacks. They wrote about the, um, the downing of the MH17 plane uh, in Ukraine, you know, uh, blaming the Russian government. They wrote about the Scripple poisonings here in the UK. Again, so they've some things to note. They've never published anything that's countering the the sort of U.S. or U.K. official line. Mm-hmm. The the founder Elliot Higgins is was formerly a research fellow, I believe, at the Atlantic Council. So the Atlantic Council is a think tank that is essentially the military think tank of NATO, and it's funded by Washington and, and several other governments. Um, and there's several other things to come out of the Atlantic Council that's that's relevant in terms of Atlantic Council is advising Facebook about its Facebook news. So the same people that um, are pushing this narrative of Bellingcat as being this investigative journalists are also telling Facebook who to consider newsworthy and who to consider right. not. So alternative, it's it's a very troubling trend at the moment where anyone that tr- any alternative voices get deplatformed off of Facebook, social media, Twitter, all that kind of thing. Um, and places like Bellingcat are promoted to be, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, these these experts. So what happens is editors across newsrooms, and so this is what I showed in my piece, is that editors, you know, some editors also have links to these same think tanks that have deep military interests. And, you know, the, the, their whole careers essentially from university have mm-hmm. been financed or at least supported by essentially extensions of the U.S. State Department. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I do, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I definitely, l- later I want to circle back and like let, have us talk sure. at length yeah, about yeah. that because that's an effect. But just to get the narrative of what happened to you. So your editor, mm-hmm. when you first said, I want to write on this, look at Peter Hitchens' story, and they said, no, he's a right winger. And anyway, Bellingcat debunked or, you know, responded to his original piece. And so we don't want to yeah. touch it because it's been discredited. Mm-hmm. So, so, that, so that was fascinating. Can you explain, like, what did that piece say and how you were pushing back as to, well, no, it hasn't sure. been discredited. Yeah, so I I can't kind of give you the specifics of what they said, but essentially they said, as they always do when there's counter-narrative, mm-hmm. oh, no, this is all uh, this is all rubbish. You should just forget about it and move on with your day. There's nothing Well, I remember, what, I mean, just because I read your thing last night, one of the things yeah. was they said, oh, what these, what the um, so-called whistleblowers complaining about was an early version of the of the report, but the final mm-hmm. version of the report that was released to the world actually wasn't, you know, incorrect or that, that's mm-hmm. the, one of the the cards they played. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then so you, and I remember you responded and said, "Well, yeah, they did change it, but it was still incorrect, if I recall." Yeah, 
Yes, exactly. So what I did is I took the Bellingcat article, I think it made seven points in total, mm-hmm. and I kind of wrote paragraphs to each of those par- um, their refutations to say why it wasn't inaccurate, and I you know, pointed to the relevant evidence or why the logic wasn't coherent. You know, there was several examples where it was saying that this chemical weapon attack happened because we believe other chemical weapons attacks happened. That's not the job of the OPCW. It's to say, in this date and time, we believe this is what's happened. Right. Anyway, so once I did that, essentially, and I sent this long, long refutation to my editors, it was just they didn't have any response for me. It was just, sorry, but we we, we can't yeah. do it. You know, it was kind yeah. of, there's no rational reason mm. um, and so what's also important to note is that I was feeling extremely sort of stressed and annoyed at this situation. So I tried to speak with my uh, London editor and bureau chief, Laura Davis, about the situation. And just, I guess, a little bit of context, you, you will have read this yourself, but um, a week prior, one of our journalists had been fired for writing a fake news story about Donald Trump. It was the Thanksgiving one. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too. So do you want sure. to talk about that? for a, mi- a minute right yeah, now sure. yeah so her name was jessica kwong yeah and and um, yeah and so people might have yeah it was the, she said what's trump doing on thanksgiving playing golf or something and then he was turned out he had a, a, and more, yeah, yeah. And he, and had he a, made a surprise a trip, trip to, to afghanistan. afghanistan so of course that was embarrassed so give us your take on that because yeah that that's interesting as to what actually so go ahead i, I want to interrupt yeah so i mean this is kind of a, a a problematic. Well, it's a trend at Newsweek and a lot of corporation um, media publications of uh, editors will essentially assign stories to reporters instead of the other way around. So typically reporters should be investigating out in the field and doing their own research and then coming up to their editors and saying, I think this is interesting or I think there's a story here that we should write about. What you kind of get now is the editors, and again, they have these dubious links, they'll go and tell reporters what to write and in this particular instance, it was essentially that they were telling a reporter to write a story that hadn't even happened yet, because right. the story about Thanksgiving was written the day before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Now, the reporter herself, I mean, you know, I'm kind of trying to defend her a little bit because, you know, she did get the information from the publicly available diary. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she was fired in the end because obviously the story turned out false, but she was how the editors kind of pinned it on her instead of the editors was to say that she should have requested a comment from the White House um, about this story. I mean, this is not really something you do for kind of a couple of reasons. Is You know, the information's already come from the White House. You don't really need to confirm right. their version of defense. But also just on a human level, it's a very, very deeply, whatever you, you think of Donald Trump, um, his politics, whether you're left and right, it's just one of those stories that really has no public interest. So personally, as a journalist, I would really tr- have a problem of kind of going to the, you know, because you, you have to deal with these on date, people on a daily basis. Right. You, you don't really want to ring up the press office and say, hey, I'm, I'm about to write this really um, pointless article about what Donald Trump is doing. And I'm basically just attacking him. Can you give me comment? Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just yeah. ludicrous. You wouldn't, you'd never do that. <laughs> um but so that's yeah. So just to make sure for people who don't fully, so what happened was the day before Thanksgiving, the editors or an editor tells her, "Hey, go write a story on what Trump's doing." She goes to the publicly posted mm-hmm. schedule for the president for that week or whatever. Yeah. It's the White House official log or document said mm-hmm. tomorrow. Here's what Trump's going to be doing. 
But secretly, he was going for a surprise visit to the troops in Afghanistan. And so that's what happened. And since Mm -hmm. she didn't, like you say, so then when it turned out to be false, uh uh-oh, someone's got to be blamed. And so the editors were, Mm -hmm. well, geez, why didn't you run up by the White House? And like you're saying, like, what would she do? Say, hey, I'm relying on the public logs. There's not like a surprise you're going to announce tomorrow, is there? That would make me look foolish as I try to smear the president. Like that that seems like a kind of pointless thing. Because for one thing, they probably would have lied to her. Or, or not mm-hmm. lied, but at least said we have no comment. Kept, yeah. Like to be quiet, to let it blow up in her face. Yeah. I mean, if she had done that, she probably wouldn't have been fired because at least she could have had some protection to say, well, right. I did this. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it was the editor's at fault because it was purely done for a clickbait reason. Sure. sure. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's especially for a, a more left wing audience, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a typical Trump attack piece. Um, this, I mean, this is significant for a few reasons, but essentially at that time, obviously the staff were on high alert, you know, a report has just been fired. So we're having meetings all the time. We had, I think, three three meetings in the space of a week, just, and, you know, in those meetings, we we discussed what went wrong, what went right, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things that was funnily, funnily mentioned, Laura Davis, my London bureau chief, you know, she was saying at these meetings, you know, I understand if you guys have concerns, please come and discuss with me. We want to, you know, we want to support you. We want to ensure this kind of thing doesn't happen in the future. And so this was happening at the time that I was actually trying to have a conversation with her. So she's saying these things in the meeting and I'm right. saying, Laura, please, can we please have, you know, go into a room and have a discussion about this? Because I, even though I understand the media landscape, I felt that this was really, really important to talk about. And so I gave, you know, I kept... I had my suspicions that there was kind of corruption and there was wrongdoing going on. But I, I kept giving Newsweek a chance. I tried to meet with Laura th- on three separate occasions. And then kind of on the last time that I asked, she just very rudely said, oh, I'm going to send you an email in a few minutes. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. And so the email contained one paragraph about the OPCW and the, less, the, the rest was just a character attack of m- myself and kind of mm-hmm. trying to paint me out to be a bad journalist. And that was the moment that I decided to resign because it was very clear to me what was going on. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, trying to attack the, the, the person, essentially. Okay, so the, the last drop, so she, you know, you had been pestering, in her mind, pestering her <laughs> about this OPCW. Like, we told you no, Tarek. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, so here's why no. But now that, yeah. we, you know, now that you've got my attention, let me tell you, since you come here to Newsweek, you know, we've been very unset, happy with your, your, your performance has been unsatisfactory. We've had mm. problems, you know, your editors have reported problems, da, 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 and, you know, that's, and so just, is, can I ask, is that why yeah. partly you feel the, it's the need to like tell people this was my, my track record at the previous, because you're afraid one of the, they're yeah. going to say he's a disgruntled employee because he was performing poorly and now he's making up stories. Exactly. And also, I wanted to be as transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. I was going to be releasing documents, you know, screen grabs and things from, you know, from Newsweek. I didn't want to do that selectively to only show where Newsweek had been kind of fraudulent, essentially. I wanted to say, listen, I'm being honest. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you the emails where they're criticizing me. You can go and look at those things and you can, you know, those stories are still available. And you can kind of, and I, I try to explain what happened in some of those particular circumstances right. to show how how their version was was misportrayed. But yeah, I kind of just wanted to say, here's everything. I've got nothing to hide. Mm. Um, people can go speak to my previous editors and or look at all my previous reporting. And, and if they have issues, please tell me. But and it was funny. I didn't mention this in the story. A few weeks prior, I, I wrote a story about. Um, 
the Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I wrote three fairly big stories about how she was held in contempt of court. One of my stories, I think, broke the Newsweek record for the amount of how many times it was read. So it was read about, I think, 1.8 million times in the space of two days, which, uh, or maybe a little bit longer. But I, I got I got an email from the head of Newsweek to say, oh, great job. Welcome to Newsweek. You're really doing a fantastic job. We really like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was getting this message from other, on other stories that I'd been doing, and I hadn't had any issues, but it was just... As soon as I, I kind of encountered the situation, it was like, oh no, you're you're you know you really need to improve your reporting. You're right. you're struggling with sourcing, yeah. and it was just complete right. rubbish. Okay, um, so what what I let's if now focus more particularly on like how the media narrative, and this is you know one of the one of the it was in the section of your your uh, essay mm-hmm. was that like how is the media narrative controlled? Because again, I'm just repeating myself that clearly anyone who's paying attention knows. There are certain things that get reported and certain things that don't, but it's not obvious to an outsider. Mm-hmm. How is that? Is it just a sort of everyone kind of plays the game knowingly or is there more official? And so maybe the thing to start out with is, um, is Demi Ryder. Am I saying his name mm-hmm. correctly? Yeah. Just explain like first, like how was he interacting with you professionally? And then when you started digging into it and, and what you discovered? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the beginning he was, he was totally fine. I didn't really have much interaction with him. And, you know, we worked together on previous stories. Um, so he worked at Newsweek, just yeah. for the listeners? Okay. Yeah, he was a he was the foreign affairs editor mm-hmm. uh, or international affairs editor. Um, I worked with him on a few previous stories. I did actually um, have a few moments where I raised some eyebrows, but I didn't really kind of comment too much. I was still early in the organization, but I just kind of noticed slight, you know, slight things that made me feel a little bit, Mm, okay, this is so. I wrote an earlier piece about white phosphorus use, and one of the instances that I gave as an example was a 2005 attack in Fallujah, which you know was one of the most devastating uses of white phosphorus in recent history. And my language was severely kind of um, like um, dialed back. Dialed back, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of. You just painted it as very. Can can I ask you just the process? Sure. So you you write your draft, you turn it in. Mm-hmm. The editors, you know, tone down the language a little bit so it's not so mm-hmm. provocative. Do you get final right to say, well, then don't run it, or do they just run it and then you just read it in the paper and see what they did with it? On most stories, that's the case. Yeah, because we're I mean we're filing several stories a day and it's just very rapid. And most mm-hmm. stories aren't you know that controversial. Uh, the white phosphorus stories that I did, I was actually going back and forth for about two weeks. But it, it, to be fair to Demi and, and Nancy Cooper, who's the editor in chief, who also worked with me on that piece, and also I should say that week, that piece that came out two weeks prior, she uh, emailed me to say what a great job I'd done on that piece, and she felt it was very important. But um, yeah, so that was going back back and forth because we were we were trying to make sure it was factually as as solid as possible. Right. So. It, it did go through a longer, a longer phase of um, editing and going back and forth. But um, I get what was the but, but, question? So, but what, when you were just mentioning the white phosphorus story, you had mm-hmm. done the language that ended up in the official version mm-hmm. was much tamer than what you had written. I'm saying, did yeah. you did you see that and were finally it was like, okay, fine, we'll go ahead and run. Like, do you have the right to veto it and say, well, then don't run it, or do you? No, do they say no? I mean, this is this is our I, organization. I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you have to pick your battles. There right. are certain mm-hmm. things. And so this, the later thing is a situation where I said, no, I have, this is, 
You right, have to right. like I with this, I mean the the story was about Turkey's alleged use in mm. in the recent uh, Syria invasion. So for me, I didn't feel like it was so important to kind of um, make a big fuss of something that was 2005 yeah. that was already reported right, on heavily. Right. Oh, yeah, I'm um, not criticizing you. I just want yeah, to know yeah, yeah. how does it work? What's but the etiquette? To, or the, yeah. Just to explain my yeah. personal thinking. I was I was thinking, okay, this is not ideal, but in the moment I was I was also very happy because the, the more significant findings of my report were not taken out, which mm. essentially I think one of the findings was, and this is also a huge story that's been completely missed, is that uh, the OPCW refused to take skin samples. So um, some a group of people took some of the skin samples and they sent them off to uh, refrigerators in Iraq, in Kirkuk, because, you know, there was a white phosphorus attack. Uh, the OPCW actually refused to take them. And even though they were you know, of, of an alleged chemical weapons attack. So, so just so the listeners understand the significance of that, so it looks like not only does it appear the OPCW is being used, you know, at some level, you know, kicking in the supervisors to produce a report that pins a chemical weapon attack on Assad that he may not have ordered, but also the Turkish troops may have launched a white phosphorus attack and you say, oh, well, we'll investigate. the OPCW will get to the bottom of this, right? And no, they won't even look at the skin samples, is what yeah. you're saying is going, okay. And that's, that's there's, there's evidence for that. I forgot where we really were. Well, so you, you said the, 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 the um, we're talking about Demi and you were saying, so mm -hmm. originally you, this episode raised some eyebrows, but you kind of just went about things. Yeah. Be because um, what? Because he was the one that was dialing back the language? Yeah, and, and there was just there was other kind of smaller examples here and there of just taking bits out. Mm -hmm. Some of the headlines I wanted to have because usually what happens is the journalists will suggest a headline, and the editors will get a final say. Sure. And again, the headline that I had for the piece was dramatically dialed down. And actually, the headline on the piece, as it stands, is actually almost completely nonsensical. It's, it's, it's I'm actually embarrassed of it because. <laughs> Because it was tried, they tried to make it a bit more clickbaity, and it's kind of, you know, Turkey is accused of using white phosphorus, and it was like the U.S. uses it too. But it's anyone with an, an understanding of foreign affairs knows that it's in the arsenal of every military in the world. Right. Um, that wasn't the, the gist of the story. It was the fact that you know this mm -hmm. was used, and and that the OPCW weren't investigating. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah. So in this in this instance, it it was. Luckily, I would, because we were using um, chat, online chat for most of the conversations, most of my interactions with Demi had taken place online, and that's why I've got a full log of, of the conversation. Um, so m much of it didn't happen online, face-to-face. Uh, -face. It was only when I, because I had two days off, and then I came back into the office, I had a, I had a meeting with Demi where he, you know, after I sent my response to the Bellingcat article, mm -hmm. and he just kind of said... You know, I, I made my arguments for five, ten minutes, and afterwards he was just—he didn't really have anything to say, and he just said, "Listen, I'm sorry. I, we're not going to do the story," and that was it. And right. I was like, "Okay," and that's when I tried to raise it to the higher level of Laura Davis and Nancy Cooper mm -hmm. as the two main editors. But again, okay, it, yeah. So now, can you just focus the? Um, so one of the things you got into was that now that you, you know, once you realized in your mind. Something, mm -hmm. something fishy is going on here. This isn't just some random series of events. You notice that 
Demi. So can you explain for the listeners, like, it's not that there's necessarily one editor who knows ahead of time. It's like there's a queue of pending articles that need editing and the editors yeah. swoop in. So can you explain how that works just for, you know, the basic understanding and then why you noticed that Demi was infrequently used, <laughs> but the ones where he did chime in on seemed to mm -hmm. have a certain pattern? Okay, yeah. So we've got this internal messaging system where the edit we have a I forget I forget the channels now, but essentially, well, reporters can pitch the stories that they want to write, but also we have a, a dedicated kind of chat where uh, editors will say, you know, NBC have run this story. Can you find out more information about this, or can you kind of recycle it and or just see what you can add to this story? Because it's sometimes and you know there's justification for doing that because they might have an important story and you know it's worth following up on right so editors will do that the reporter will go away find their their whatever they need to find write up the story put it into the content management system with the pictures and all the links and the videos and kind of perfectly package it ready to go for the editor and then in a, in a separate channel uh, we'll put the link to that that draft and we'll send it with our proposed headline and the editors will then go and go through that list and they'll say, okay, I'm taking this story for editing. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll, once it's finished, they'll put it in, a, in another channel called published uh, with the final URL that's on the website. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of noticed because it, it's useful for my day-to-day -day job to kind of just keep a track of this list just to see who's writing what and what stories we're doing and just so you're not repeating because obviously – I'm pitching ideas, so I don't. It, it looks a little bit stupid to kind of go up to your editor and say, oh, "I want to do a story about this," and he says, "Oh, we wrote about this three hours ago." It's right. um, mm -hmm. so, and you, you kind of should be aware of what what your publication is publishing. Um, so I, you know, I, I kept, and I'm sure most journalists do the same. So just you know, you, you glance through it all the time and just see what's happening. Yeah, I noticed that Demi Ryder really wasn't contributing at all, even though he was the foreign affairs editor. Um, and there were several foreign affairs stories that were published every single day, and he wasn't involved in them at all. It was only when I uh, wanted to write something that was potentially controversial, the editors just automatically said, okay, can you work on this story with Demi? Um, can I ask you now, is, <clears throat> like someone, it wasn't just that you noticed when you had it in the queue or whatever that he was the one who grabbed it, like officially somebody said to you with that one, you know what, why don't you go work yeah. with Demi? Because sometimes when I have more complicated stories where I know that they might be controversial or they might, you know, they need a bit more explanation, I still prefer to go and talk to my editors face to face. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably why this part, I mean, the slight factor in why this issue arose is that why I've never had problems in the past is that, you know, face to face when I talk to someone, you know, you treat people at a human level and, they, you know, you it's, hard, it's much harder to kind of get away with falsehood or you know right you know i've had editors that say i don't know how i feel about this but then i'll say listen look this is the evidence and you know i've, I've got a good reputation so when usually when this happens editors will be like yeah okay fair enough mm -hmm. this is so but i think in this situation just because it was all done online it's, it's so much easier to say you know it doesn't matter what my tone of my argument is it's much easier just to respond yeah. in a particular way but on this occasion i went to one of my other editors and i, I just discussed it with him and yeah, he said, you know, please write me a message to with me and Demi. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like this automatic deferral to Demi on on anything that's controversial. And now where this becomes relevant is when I start to have my suspicions 
Uh, I noticed that, um, well, several things, but essentially Dimi was a research fellow or associate fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations, which mm -hmm. is the sister organization of the Council of Foreign Relations. Mm -hmm. Now, just to tie some of these pieces together, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein was a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. And, you know, there's, I mean, essentially, it's the most powerful think tank in, in, in the United States. And it's, it's purely a you know, it's, it represents the military-industrial complex better than any other organization. So, and can you explain I, the link to the Carlisle Group just to show that's not just some throwaway phrase you're giving there? Sorry, oh, the Carlisle Group, for example. Oh, so the I believe the president or the chief executive of the of Carlisle Group, which is a private equity firm. I think, uh, but it essentially is one of the world's leading um, private equity firms or investors in the, the arms trade. So, you know, aircraft, um, ammunition, all that kind of thing. So whenever the U.S. goes to war, its, it's profits and dividends all go up. Yeah, the president of that is the head of the CFR. And as I'm sure a lot of people were, were aware that, uh, at, you know, during on the day the Twin Towers fell on 9-11, on uh, the head of the Carlisle Group was sitting next to um, Osama bin Laden's brother and uh, George Bush Sr. And they were at a table together because uh, the bin Laden family were significant investors in the, in the Carlisle Group. So you have these very shady, you know, and if you go back and look back at the history of, of the 1980s in Afghanistan, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll have a much better understanding of this than probably I will. But, um, you know, you have these shady and kind of dubious connections that span, you know, and this, so this this story I don't think has been, I'm sure a lot of people have been aware of these connections between the Council of Foreign Relations and journalism. Uh, it's definitely known in politics, you know, how the kind of revolving door between right. um, the U.S. State Department and arm and these... What, so, so, yeah, this, yeah, can you, so, Demi... It's not. Was he was he also one of the State Department funded people, or was that some were so, those other people? So, in terms of his, um, I didn't, I couldn't find out his undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. but um, so that wasn't mentioned. But the first kind of thing on his career ladder that I could find was uh, he was he worked at Nine Seven Two Magazine, which is he's he's an Israeli Dimi writer, um, but it's a Israeli publication that covered the Israeli uh, the Israel Gaza conflict. But then, when you kind of go in and find out who's funding this this organization, it's funded by someone who, with links to the Council of Foreign Relations again. Anyway, so the, the trend that I discovered that was similar with Dimi Ryder and also. I'll get onto this in a second. It's the the same career path that Fareed Zakaria took, um, but essentially most people, I can't say for sure about Demi, they'll attend a, a State Department funded diplomacy program or a politics program, but uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, um, the School of uh, Oriental and African Studies in London, or King's College in London, uh, and there's several institutions like this. From there, they'll go to these sort of seemingly uh, liberal or charitable kind of news organizations where they're, you know, they're covering human rights issues or, but, they, you know, it's essentially where they are, their journalism training takes place. Um, you know, they, they, they don't pick idiots, they pick smart people that can write and blah, 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 but they'll go to these very not well-known little publications that have funding from 
again, the Council of Foreign Relations or State Department or other other think tanks. Uh, and then once they've kind of gritted their teeth in, in these publications, they'll start to filter out into more uh, mainstream newsrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I was kind of looking through LinkedIn and Twitter, and I, the, I was staggered by the amount of people that had this exact same route. And then the most prominent example I found was Fareed Zachariah. So he attended a diplomacy program at Yale, and then he, he it's a little bit unclear, but he was involved in a political affairs or foreign affairs program with Harvard. From there, he went straight to the Council of Foreign Relations publication, uh, Foreign Affairs. And then from Foreign Affairs, he became the editor of Newsweek and then editor of Time. Uh, what's interesting to note, and I show this in my piece, is that some of his articles are, you know, some of the original and first times that you see the lies about Iraq start to be perpetrated. So what you kind of tend to see the pattern is that things will get reported by the Council of Foreign Relations or people that are in those industries, and then it will kind of seep through to the the wider politicians. The Council of Foreign uh, Relations almost seems to be like a very good indicator of what US foreign policy will be in two years' time. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I just mention, you reminded me, the thing that blew my mind when I first learned it, you know Anderson Cooper? Yeah. Oh, is he? Yeah. And when he was an undergrad, he spent two summers as an intern at the CIA. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I mean. So that's, you know, that's where he learned how to make coffee. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm I, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. no. Well, okay. Well, I so, so this, um, so, so tell me if this is a summary. So your, at least your um, hypothesis is mm-hmm. that look at, I know Tarek from personal, my personal experience at Newsweek that when I ever had a, a pretty controversial story that might be, you know, crossing some lines in terms of mm-hmm. what are we saying about the integrity of the UK or US, you know, military adventures, um, mm-hmm. um, it would go by this particular editor, happened to be Demi, and mm-hmm. he would basically veto it. He would come up with some reason, nah, we're not running with that one, you know, thanks, yeah. but no, nah, we're going to pass on this one. Thanks, Tarek. Go, go do mm-hmm. something else. Talk about you yeah. know, Trump's Thanksgiving or something. Exactly. And then and then you realize, and, and then do you think there is such a person at every major organization? And so that would explain this pattern where clearly some stories just don't see the light of day and you got to go to alternative media because at the major ones, there's someone like him who kind of just quashes it if it's a little bit too hot. I think so. Yeah. Um, again, I, I, I didn't have time to kind of research this in full specifics right. because I just wanted to get my piece out as quickly as sure, possible. Sure. I wrote, I mean, I wrote 7,000 words. Um, I probably, I didn't want to keep going, but, um, right. yeah, that's my, I mean, that's my strong understanding. And I've, I've heard from other people that that's the, the experience that, that they've had. Um, and, and I should mention for people who think, you know, oh, this is crazy. I mean, there's a thing called Operation Mockingbird. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. famous in, you know, you but I mean, it's yeah. well documented it's on Wikipedia, folks. So you can't, mm-hmm. but the CIA in the 50s had a formal program where they were putting their, you know, people in major news organizations to control mm-hmm. the narrative. Yeah. And so, I mean, this isn't some crazy hype theory. I mean, this, they've done it in the past. And mm-hmm. so I guess my question to you is like, do you, you know, I guess you don't know because you can't get inside somebody else's mind, mm-hmm. but how much of it is more of a just, oh, people who are funded by the State Department and go work at these institutions, like they have a certain worldview and way of looking at things and that mm-hmm. versus like, oh, they're getting orders from, you know, their handler 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get what I'm saying. Like, there's a there's a, a difference there, and yeah, the, the, the the effect might be the same, the outcome, mm -hmm. but in terms of, you know, I think yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, and obviously, some of the people I write about, I've kind of painted them as these kind of evil spies living in inside our newsrooms. Right. Um, <laughs> I think that it's probably a, a situation where. You know, they go to these undergrads. That, you know, their their worldview isn't really well well shaped. The your state department will pay for it. You feel indebted to them. Uh, you probably owe them some money, but then you know they'll give you a, a stable job in this publication, probably well paid. Mm -hmm. And you know, to be to be fair to Demi Ryder, I mean, in my kind of day to day dealings with him, or just kind of friendly conversations, he was a lovely guy. There was nothing wrong with him. Yeah. Um, you know, quiet, mm -hmm. fairly kind of shy and. But you know, just this normal guy, not, you know, nothing that you could really dislike about him. So I'm, I'm not sh with. I mean, and this is just purely speculation. With him, I got the impression that he he knew that he was aware that he was doing something sinister because I, you know, I had the conversation with him where I explained, listen, I don't think we should be trusting Bellingcat, and I think that this and and when. You know, when he flatly refused to kind of cooperate with me, um, and also, you know, there was you know other signals, but you know, it's it, it with him, it felt like he he knew that he was being sinister. Uh, with some others, you know, I think some of the trolls maybe on on actually, I take that back. I think I'm gonna. I think people are aware. Those that aren't aware should educate themselves essentially on what they're being used to do. But I think actually especially with the trolls on Twitter, I think because they're part of, an, uh, of a um, kind of coordinated effort of misinformation. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. Let's take a break, folks, from my discussion with Tarek to talk about what you can do to keep interviews like this coming fast and furious. As you can tell, I don't have conventional commercials on the Bob Murphy Show. I'd like to keep it that way. But we do have to pay the bills so I'm going to ask if you like the show, certainly if you want to see me increase the frequency of the episodes to continue with interviews like this, please check out the details of how you can help at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, um, another one if we could talk about, which was interesting, just to show how the narrative um, is, is, is controlled, is you had a, a provocative piece on Ilhan Omar. So can you mm -hmm. tell the story about what happened there? Well, so this is, again, very interesting. Um, this was not something I proposed, but when Demi sent me back the reason why I couldn't run the OPCW story, he kind of said, oh, this is the same reason of, of other publications that you mentioned not doing the story. He said, this is the same reason I didn't do this um, Ilhan Omar being a spy story. And I, I had no idea about what this story was. And it, at first thing, obviously, you hear that a U.S. congresswoman is being accused of a spy you think oh of course that's a stupid story like it's you know i'm and with no information i i didn't have any kind of any any qualms right, about that. It, it sounds like it's a bigoted smear yeah it, yeah it, it, and, uh -huh. and essentially i was kind of offended actually because i right. provided all these documents to say this is a real story he was saying oh it's the same reason i'm not doing this this ridiculous story about ilhan omar being a spy fair enough okay i you know nothing against that but funnily enough, while, that while I had this one-week period where I kept like pushing with my editors to try and get this story, 
I think I was essentially being tested um, to kind of see if I'm going to start getting the hints because they were making my day-to-day life very, very difficult as I, as I lay out full detail in my piece. But uh, I was sent this article that was kind of a follow-up about Ilhan Omar, I believe a, um, a congressional candidate, a Republican, had made reference to the allegations. Um, she said that, I, I can't remember the, the name of the woman, um, maybe Daniela Steele, possibly. I'm inventing that. But uh, you'll find the article online. Uh, she said that Ilhan Omar should be, um, should be hanged if she's found guilty of treason. Uh, she was suspended from Twitter for making for tweeting that, mm-hmm. um, and I wrote a story that just explained those circumstances. But again, I was assigned that story. It wasn't one that I originally came to my attention. Um, in the story in itself, there's nothing wrong. There is newsworthy reasons to write this. You know, a congress, a, well, a congressional candidate who's running for office in 2020 suspended from Twitter. That's a, a, a genuine news story. But when I, you know, was doing my fact-checking, was doing my research for the story, I looked into these Ilhan Omar allegations that Dimi had mentioned previously. And so what I discovered was that there was a deposition uh, from a Florida courtroom where a very well-connected um, Canadian Qatari businessman, you know, kind of laid out how Ilhan Omar was essentially a operative for Qatar. And um, I'm, again, I'm not 100% familiar with all these details, but... You know, I didn't have enough information to say that this deposition was true, but it, in, from a news perspective, um, it was evidence that was given in a U.S. courtroom mm. by there, a named There was individual. more to the allegation than just some racist thing Trump says or something. Exactly. Is what you discovered. Right. There was, okay. there was yeah. evidence in a U.S. courtroom, and the, def- the deposition was available. You know, I have mm. the PDF of the deposition. Mm. Um, I didn't have time to read it before I did the story. It was 230 pages long. But um, And that deposition is still available online if people want to investigate this further. And I think some people have. But when I, when I referenced this deposition and where these, where, you know, these tweets came from, essentially, that, that uh, influenced this Republican candidate to say these things, I, I referenced just to say that she was referencing this deposition that, that came out in Florida a couple of weeks ago. Those all of the evidence that kind of showed where this information with the links to the the, uh, article were removed and it was changed to baseless claims. And so this, and so when I saw this go online, once my piece was published, it automatically, well, I already had my suspicions that, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was like, Oh, Ilhan Omar's story. Isn't this what Demi mentioned before? They said, we're not touching this story. Why am I given this story now? It's like, Oh, am I, you know, going to get the hint that anyway, Mm -hmm. So, Can I, so let me just make sure the listeners mm-hmm. got what happened. So the, you're still working at Newsweek at this point. You've been having pushback on your pitch in the OPCW stuff. In the meantime, yep. somebody says, hey, Tarek, this lady, this Republican candidate for Congress just got booted off Twitter. Cover that story. So you're going into it. And then as any journalist would do, mm-hmm. well, someone gets kicked off Twitter for saying something that sounds kind of crazy. Let's look into why is she saying that? Is it, oh, it yeah. turns out there's a deposition. And you weren't saying this amazing foolproof deposition. Go check yeah, it out, I, folks. I, you I were just linking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I made it clear that, uh, you know, I have no additional things to, to right. verify this. or. But and again, I'm as a journalist, I'm, I write things that politicians say that are incorrect all the time. I'm not personally responsible. If that person is lying, if Alan Bender, who's the man that gave the deposition, if he's lying, it's hit, it's 
it's it's him. It's you know, sure. I'm just yeah. reporting the news essentially. And so your editor then changed that language where you said, you know, referring to this deposition in the Florida courtroom or something, just changed it to baseless, baseless. claims. Yeah. Did, did they link to the deposition or did they take the link? No, out? so I had linked to it. Those uh-huh. links where people could find more information were removed. And that's wow. when I was thinking, mm. well, this is very suspicious. Yeah. And then, which was so also can, very, can I Can I yeah. say, Terry, I, I think what had, you tell me if you think this is, I think the read, the distinction there is when the story was, hey, is Ilhan Omar a Qatari spy? No, that's crazy talk. Newsweek doesn't touch that. When the story is, Twitter rightfully booted someone for repeating such a stupid, baseless claim. That's the story. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't <laughs> argue that actually it was rightful to do of Twitter. Well, sure, but I'm saying yeah, I can see how oh. in his mind that's consistent. Yeah, we're not yeah, gonna yeah. we're not gonna advance this crazy narrative, but yeah. we'll report on Twitter. Thank goodness for yeah. smacking also, down this crazy also narrative. Also worth noting that Twitter has been part of this kind of decline in or this this decline into authoritarianism because they've been uh, censoring accounts that say anything that's counter the U.S. narrative and, right, you know, right. shadow banning people mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So, but yeah, I think your your characterization is correct. So, And this is interesting too, just so you know, you and, and I have different political views, I think. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't like taxes. And so when I know, when I see companies relocating to avoid taxes, in my mind, I'm like, okay, good for them. So, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. So I'm just saying that's why I like the fact that you and I agree so much on this, you know, like, let's call it the war machine, for lack of a yeah. better term. And, and it's interesting because when I was younger, growing up in the U.S., like, I had this idea that left-wing newspapers were anti-war. Mm-hmm. And so that this is what's so fascinating about the particular examples you're giving here where it's Newsweek is anti-Trump, or, you know, or they're willing to run stories that openly just mock him. Like you said, that Thanksgiving Day story, that wasn't mm-hmm. really a piece of journalism or, you know, that's not going to win mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize. But if if it's something where, um, in other words, why couldn't it be some of these stories about the, you know, the gas, like you would think it would, they could have spun it as, oh, Trump's trying to get the U.S. into another war. What a warmongering idiot. But that's not the... Like mm-hmm. like the intelligence community and the U.S. government is either bumbling fools or noble purveyors of justice, depending on if a war is involved. Well, I think it's it's kind of important to to say that, um, and I think you'll be aware of this, and many people will be aware of this, is that the Democratic Party uh, very much gave up its dedication or its attempt to represent working class people a very long time ago, mm-hmm. um, and they their main interests were corporate America. Um, You saw this with Hillary Clinton's emails in 2016, where she was giving all these speeches to Goldman Sachs and um, Mm -hmm. others. But essentially, the the media has, you know, as as a kind of extension of, of the Democratic Party, which is, I mean, I don't like to, you know, there are, we should keep them separate, but essentially, um, and the Democrats have now also become they are now part of this industrial military industrial complex with you know they are as much warmongers as as anyone and mm-hmm. you, you know you could see that with hillary clinton that's you know even though she's not so prominent now you know for a very long time bill clinton who was also a council of foreign relations member and so is hillary and so is their daughter we should mention uh you know they are essentially promoting war interests and they have done for a very long time and so actually funnily enough it's I'm sure other people could speak about this better, but the whole media environment is very much linked to 
Democrats, and you see Democrats in the in the intelligence community both dislike Trump. So they've kind of their unison has has become in lockstep. That's why you see these things about Russiagate and you know Jake Comey, and you know so, there's so much dangerous falsification going on there. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm no fan of Trump, I should say. What what if I could just mention? That's why I, I was so fascinated when I saw some of you know your that your original foray into this was the article complaining about tax evasion or breaking the story mm-hmm. on that stuff, because I'm sure. guessing you weren't a fan of like the Republican tax cut package. Yeah, I mean... Probably, so so you, you have reasons that you wouldn't like Donald Trump, and yet, and here, you know, you're, you're pointing out things. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, you're, you're an economist and you probably have an understanding of th- these things slightly better than I do. I mean, again, I'm sure there are valid reasons for cutting taxes. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I specifically had an issue with is corporations not paying the tax that they should be for their for their country right yeah so right. you see apple for example they were actually registered in jersey you know the, the most profitable company in the world is paying essentially zero tax that's what i have a problem with yeah and, yeah, you know, yeah i got you so yeah um so but yeah. I, so again just to let you to reiterate that the conventional views of oh yeah it's the right wingers who are war hawks and the left wingers who are hippies and you know listening to john lennon and smoking mm-hmm. dope and what like that, as you're saying, in terms of the mainstream political parties, that's that's not true. Like they're both, whether you're talking about the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, they're both pro-empire, let's say. Like pro-war yeah. is a provocative term, but they, they got no problem with the U.S. and U.K. governments running the world, if I can mm-hmm. speak a little loosely. Sure. And, and so any narrative that makes it look like maybe the U.S. government or the U.K. government aren't the good guys – Mm-hmm. like that is immediately branded as a conspiracy theory and that's just considered weird and the the media treat it as such like the, oh come on like mm-hmm. you know the yeah mistakes were made but you know it wasn't like there was you know foul play here mm-hmm. but then when you look through history uh i think you know every single war has been supported by all of the press all of the right. time, pretty much. <laughs> um, it's, it's only kind of like in the late stages of Vietnam that you start to see pushback, I think. And, you know, but in most, in the very early days, at least, you usually get the trend of the, the media tends to be for, for war. Um, and I think this is actually kind of leads to the, the very interesting situation now is that I think the situation has got so bad that America really has declined into an authoritarian country. Um, and I, I don't, I don't say this lightly, and I don't say this because I, because I dislike America. I, right. you know, I, I genuinely love what the ideas that America stands for, um, and I say this from a place of genuinely being concerned. Um, I was speaking to a journalist the other day that is um, very knowledgeable of what's going on in in Iran and Iraq and Syria at the moment, and we'll get into that in a minute, I'm sure. But uh, what looks like is happening on a global scale is that. Um, America is in is in rapid decline, and one of the big reasons for that is that it really has lost the ability to to speak truthfully, and and freedom of speech is is now not something that America can say. I think I saw a, a statistic recently from a, like an, a body that monitors freedom of speech across the world. I think America has slid to number eighteen in the world, and mm. you know you'd think that Americans, you know, with being first constitu- uh, you know, first, uh, first Amendment, sorry, you know, this would start to be kind of being taken more seriously. And this is what I'm trying to do at the moment is to try and encourage people to start really holding their media to account because 
we, you know, the U.S. nearly went into World War Three a few days ago, uh, a war that probably they will have lost, which, you know, Amer many Americans may be upset me for saying this, but, the, you know, if you look at what's happening in the Middle East, they're slowly just continually losing influence in that region. And Russia, China, Iran, all of those countries have come to a basic agreement and you know, so this might sound offensive to some people because we're so used to looking at all those countries as, you know, evil and so on. But what I understand from this journalist who's who's very well educated and very knowledgeable of these things is that all of these countries that have essentially been at the receiving end of U.S. foreign policy for a number of years have said, we're going to make a strategic alliance together. And all we're trying to do at the moment is restore international sovereignty, which is something the United States hasn't respected in a very long time. And international law, again, something that the US has not really respected for a long time. You know, it's 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 kind of sad and and but it's, you know, the UK and the United States were the key partners that set up the United Nations after World War II. But what you saw happening is that the United Nations was only really used to uh, condemn the crimes of every other country. Right. You know, you've never seen a war criminal from the United States or the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. even though Henry Kissinger, for example, is probably the most, you know, among the you know top five, you know, top five war criminals ever. So you kind of get this pattern of uh, American or Western crimes not really being taken seriously. Yeah, just as an example, I don't know if you've ever heard, but if you heard you know, how President Richard Nixon used to record the conversations, and mm -hmm. there's some chilling stuff about him and Kissinger, just where where Nixon's like, "Well, let's think big here, Henry. Like, what if we blow up some dams, and would that just flood and kill a bunch? You know?" And even Kissinger's like, "I think that might be too far." <laughs> you know, it's like when when Henry Kissinger's telling you <laughs> that might be too much collateral damage. You know, though, geez, that's <laughs> so. Anyway, I'm just saying that. Yeah, like yeah. You're, you're not using these phrases lightly. Like, it's definitely. Mm -hmm. Or, of course, the U.S. invasion of... I mean, this is something that American audiences are just really... That movie that recently came out showing how the U.S. pressured people in the U.K. intelligence to get blackmail material for the invasion of Iraq on other U.N. Security Council members to urge them to go ahead and approve it. I mean, it's it just... The whole thing is is amazing. The more this, this stuff that comes out, and it's, like yeah. you say, the, the, the idea that the conventional American narrative is... The rest of the world, if they, if they got a problem with us, it's because they don't like our freedom. And it's like, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, and because America kind of goes to these countries saying that they want to promote freedom, but all you get is, you know, devastating loss of life. And, you know, just look at any country where the U.S. has kind of had its fingerprints. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it's not really ended very well. Um, and, the, you know, they've not left with democracy. And I think it's it's a very... And, you know, obviously the world was thankful for what America did in World War II. Um, but I think that kind of attitude has become almost, it's gone too far where America's trying to police the world, but it's it's really not, not doing it honestly. And it's also not doing so at the same time of policing itself. You know, my attitude as a journalist, because I, sometimes I get criticized for writing critical things about the UK or US governments, Mm -hmm. You know, my response is I'm a, I'm a British citizen. I, I, you know, I love the Western world. I can make the most influence in my country. If I'm a journalist, I'm trying to influence the politics of my country. You think if I write a story about how evil China is, you think that anyone's going to pay any attention to it? Right. It would just it'll completely go unnoticed. 
So, you know, I think we, and um, you know, that's why I urge people to, to do going forward and do so urgently because I think we're in a very drastic situation. But I think we really need to kind of um, take a hard look at, you know, what America is doing and, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, like- j- just to give an example, you mentioned the U.S. doesn't respect sovereignty anymore. I mean, this just happened, I think, yesterday or maybe two days ago at this point as we're recording this, where the Iraqi parliament, they passed a resolution, like, I don't know the exact legal status, mm-hmm. but like basically voting to have the U.S. leave. And Trump said something along the lines of, well, if the Iraqi government tells us to leave, then we're going to put sanctions on them like they've never seen. It's like, wait a minute, so now a government's not allowed to tell you to take your, tro- their, your troops out of their country? Like, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, yeah, I and mean, this is they, supposed to be the country that, quote, we liberated. You know what I mean? So if we're saying, oh, no, their government's not really sovereign, well, then what the heck was the whole invasion for and toppling Saddam? And that, 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 you but know. The whole thing is a, is a fabrication because they should have never gone in in the first place. I, obviously, but just, I'm yeah, just saying, even, just yeah, even on its own terms, that Trump would think see, that would be the, something to tweet out. And this is, I guess this is something that I've tried to raise is actually the, the freedom of speech and the freedom of press has got so bad that, Americans' own understanding of their own history is flawed. So what happens is that the kind of their lies build up on each other till you have this worldview that's just actually not factual at all. And so why I'm trying to kind of point out these issues in journalism is that I'm saying if America is going to kind of prosper going forward, it really needs to have honest journalism because otherwise it's it's going to quickly disintegrate. And it's a risk of doing so. I mean, if you saw the reporting after um, the Irani general was assassinated, you've you didn't see anything criticizing that you know an international an assassination of, of a politician in another country. And now we're seeing reports today that you know the Soleimani was he was in talks with Saudi Arabia about um, the day he was killed, he was supposed to meet a Saudi Arabian official about kind of how to de-escalate tension in the region and follow international law. And this is something that he's killed for, essentially because it's a threat to U.S. interests or, um, you know. Yeah, that element, because my understanding is that the U.S. and perhaps Israeli intelligence, like, they knew where that guy was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like he had been underground and all of a sudden there was this brief moment, Mr. President, where you had the chance to take this guy out. We can't. Mm-hmm. That you know they they could have done this three weeks ago or four weeks you know it's mm-hmm. and that you know why is it that now and like I said like I'm I don't I don't know but I've I've heard people saying oh it's not because he was getting ready to plan some big attack on the mm-hmm. contrary he was meeting with people about de-escalating and so we can't have that mm-hmm. and I guess just a further background to all of this because I think it's it's important to put things into perspective is that the U.S. empire traditionally has the way it's kind of ruled its empire is to have essentially these proxy governments. So you have in Syria, for example, well, that it wasn't successful, but you, they will fund Syrian fighters or, you know, how they've done it in South America is they will fund natives of that country, arm them and set off a war and hope that, uh, you know, the, the guys that they back will become the rulers and then they will serve American interests. That history has shown as just fails over and over and over and over again, and is part of this decline of the U.S. empire. China, with which I'm not a fan of, it's got some very kind of very troubling things going on with um, kind of facial recognition and um, those kind of things. But um, its empire has developed a new strategy of well, the the Belt and uh, Belt and Road Initiative. 
So instead of kind of trying to um, give opposition forces arms to go and overthrow the government, all they're doing is uh, providing loans to those governments to say, uh, you know, we'll help you build roads, we'll help you build infrastructure. And, you know, if we do these things, they will, you know, hope that they have a closer alliance. And so actually, this is exactly what's happened in Iraq the last few weeks, or not few weeks, few months, is that Iraq signed uh, agreements with China for financing to rebuild the country. And that's why their interests have now started to be with this kind of China-Iran-Russia alliance, because they're all kind of agreeing together. The mm. only way to prevent um, further kind of military aggression by the US is to, to stand up all together. Huh, okay. Um, so, yeah, and it explains so many other factors um, that, that you see going on. I mean, there's good reporting to show that the, I don't know if you're aware of the Uyghurs story about the detention camps in China. No, I'm not. Okay, well, that was something that's been in the, I guess, in the left-wing media a lot more prominently. But you saw a lot of stories kind of saying how evil, um, you know, these Chinese concentration camps were with Uyghurs, which is like a minority population in China. You know, some investigative journalists have shown that this is just uh, propaganda. And it's, we're kind of seeing it now. That, that, And so this is something for you and your audience to be aware of, is start um, being aware of how China is um, demonized in the press. You know, so Uyghurs have lived in China for, you know, a very long time. And now it's just all of a sudden when we, when Iraq at the kind of border of, of, the, of the empires, um, when Iraq starts to go towards China now, and we're kind of getting very close to this conflict between uh, the US and China, you're going to start seeing all these really demonizing articles about China. And it's the same as what's been done with Russia for, for a long time, obviously. Yeah, and... I think it goes without saying, and you have said it actually, that it's not that you're saying, oh, there's good guys and bad guys and the Russians, you know, Putin is an angel. Yeah, That's yeah. not the issue. But if if the media narrative is like ginning up the public to get ready for a war by demonizing one government, mm -hmm. sometimes with, with outright fabrications, mm -hmm. I mean, that's something the public needs to be aware of that, you know, let's exactly. let's not have a war here based on, you know, fa false stories that are getting promoted. Yeah, and I wrote in my in my piece, which was, like uh, mid-December, I wrote that how dangerous what we're doing is. I said, you know, the, the, these UN bodies and international laws and the OPCW were set up to avoid the horrors of World War II. And it was, you know, within a matter of weeks, we were nearly on the brink of what would be the biggest war we've ever seen. And the, the, the media was just completely all pro-war and it's it's just I, it staggers me that you know people don't understand history like a war of that magnitude would be absolutely devastating and we have no idea what it would look like this is the thing with wars is that once they start actually they just continue and they get worse and they're not um once you're in them it's very difficult to stop them you know so it's it's you know really really kind of troubling times and I you know a few days ago I was I I couldn't actually believe the news I was seeing and it was also very depressing in the fact that so many so few Americans actually knew what was going on I spoke to I messaged a few of my friends you know fairly educated people they had no idea what was going on you know the fact that we we could be on the brink of World War Three it was just completely unknown to most Americans yeah I will say. Um... I was pleasantly surprised because normally, yeah, the pattern with Trump is on just about anything, 
the American major media would treat him as a buffoon, you know, incompetent, racist pig, blah, 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 who hates women. But then whenever he would like launch a cruise missile strike or something, that was finally the president acting presidential. Yeah. But on this one, for whatever reason, maybe because it's an election year, but the the Democratic candidates all, they didn't say it was the wrong thing to do, but just, you know, I'm very concerned that the president, you know, may have done something rashly here. So well, that was interesting, that take. But go ahead. Well, go I mean, ahead. it is interesting, but it shows you how, the, I mean, the media is so distorted against Trump, but it's, it's actually a ridiculous thing because for those that have been following the impeachment is that the story came out two weeks before Christmas is that... Um, Nancy Pelosi was aware that George Bush had lied about weapons of mass destruction, right, right. and mm -hmm. she chose not to push for impeachment in that circumstance. And now uh, that uh, President Trump launched these attacks on, um, you know, everyone, the, the thing that the Democrats were criticizing him for was not uh, getting approval from Congress before the strike. Um, so that just was very, you know, disingenuous because it's, it's essentially a very similar. You know, and, and yeah, it just it's it's ridiculous to be critical of one thing and not the other. Yeah. But by the way, just for listeners, so mm -hmm. I just Tariq, so you know, I just by when this episode my interview here, when it drops, I will it will just come on the heels of me doing a whole episode where I on my own I went through that. Oh, and I recently, uh, play, or no, actually, we had already did drop that. Yeah, playing that clip from Nancy, just for the listeners <laughs> who don't know what we're talking about, a student at a CNN town hall or something asked her. How come Nancy Pelosi, you're pushing for the, you know, you're supporting the impeachment of Donald Trump when you didn't, you famously didn't want to impeach George W. Bush. And she, yeah, admitted, oh, it's not just that he got us into a bad war or something. It's that she said, oh, we, I had seen the intelligence reports. I knew the Bush administration was, was misleading the American people as to what those reports said. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's like, that's a war crime. It, like you, you can't invade a country on the basis of lies. I think that's a no-no. Mm -hmm. And yet that wasn't an impeachable offense. But mm -hmm. here, you know, Trump asking another government to look into Joe Biden, that all of a sudden is, a, so yeah, that is that is amazing that she I've admitted just, that. Yeah, I've just become aware of, um, through another podcast that I've done, um, John Kiriakou, who was the whistleblower. I don't know if you're aware of the name. He um, he exposed the, um, the torture in, yeah, I think he was NSA. He, so he got imprisoned under Barack Obama, but he um, he whistled, He was a whistleblower about uh, torture allegation, the Abu Ghraib prison and things yep, of yep. that nature. I think he was the whistleblower in that circumstance. But he was actually referencing this point. He said, uh, from his understanding, all of Congress knew that this was a lie, mm -hmm. Democrat and Republican. They all knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I mean, I don't know that personally, but that's what he says. And he, sure, he seems sure. to be a respectable, you know, you know, he has mm. intelligence background. Mm -hmm. Well, as I think we're we're running down here on the on the time, but can mm -hmm. we maybe just can you tell? I know Fox News had you on, like, so you know, you posted this thing, and mm -hmm. a bunch of my the people I follow on Twitter were pointing it, saying, "Hey, look at this! This Newsweek journalist resigned mm -hmm. because they were, you know, mm -hmm. they were quashing the OPCW story." So Fox had you want like what what, well, what has been the media treatment of you? Well, so obviously no mainstream publication have run anything. Uh, Fox News did one initial story about my resignation, and I think it's because they were the most prominent ones to report on the Jessica Kwan thing. But they didn't actually report on the kind of aftermath of me writing my piece and the things that I 
which I was actually a little bit disappointed about. I, I contacted the reporter that uh, had wrote that piece, and I said, you know, you know, you wrote this original piece. Are you going to be following up? And they they couldn't even really be bothered to read my piece, which I was very annoyed about um, because mm-hmm. it's a it's a freedom of speech issue essentially. And I, you know, I, and this is kind of it's interesting. We we talked about this a little bit. It's interesting how me and you can have this conversation. Yeah, one of the things I'm trying to to do is, and I'm starting a podcast myself with this kind of particular aim in mind, is that um, trying to get people of opposite viewpoints to actually just be able to sit down and have a conversation like normal humans without mm. thinking of each other as, as fascists and bigots and Nazis and so on. <laughs> sure, right. Um, which, I, don't, I mean, the evidence is still, I don't know if Americans can, can do that, but I'm hoping that's what we can do going forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had no problem with talking to this Fox News guy, and I, but I was saying, you know, that it's a freedom of speech issue, but for some reason he couldn't really see the, the point in the article. Um, but there has been some, I mean, it's funny, we're kind of seeing freedom of speech issues, which were traditionally kind of a left-ish, you know, thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's actually moved to the right. And so that's why there was one piece in the American Conservative about me, you know, but that's really been it. Other than that, it's been international press. Um, I've spoken to Rush today, even though some people might try and smear me, but from my experience of going in that newsroom, it was it was all British journalists trying to do their best for for a corporation in a difficult media landscape. Right. Um, you know, and and I, I have no problems in talking to anyone about this. If a journalist from NBC or whatever CNN wants to talk to me, then please pick up the phone. I, I'm only talking to RT or some of the Arabic channels that I've spoken to. Is that I think this is a very you know deeply important subject, and it's needs to be discussed. I don't mind who who I'll d- discuss it with. And I think that's the problem too, because I've been on RT, you know, in my mm-hmm. capacity as an economist, mm-hmm. and it is true. Why do they have me on to criticize something the U.S. government's doing? And so yeah. I understand, like, oh, you're just helping Putin. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. I said, well, if the U.S. government's doing something I think is wrong and you know, or economically destructive or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll make my case to anybody. I, I'll I'll say that to MSNBC too if they want. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So your plans not like you're you're not you're hoping to just be like an independent voice and get your own podcast and things going. Is that what your yeah, career sure. path is? At so the, the, the interesting that's happened is um, I think I kind of touched a nerve with the wider situation, and I've been flooded by communication i I honestly can't keep up with it but the interesting aspect of that uh is i've had so many other journalists that i've come into contact with that have experienced similar things or that they have other pieces to this puzzle that um paint a much bigger picture than i was first aware of kind of two days after i wrote my story i was actually my head was spinning because i was Mm -hmm. i thought i kind of uncovered this big corruption and actually it turns out it's so much bigger than i thought um, and there was no way of me kind of collating all that information in, in kind right. of a, a neat, neat piece. So I, um, I decided to start a podcast because essentially I want to have conversations with all those people, but the most efficient way to do it was just to record it right. and then put it out for the public to see. Um, and then I don't really have to go and write an 800 word piece on every single person, especially as some of these issues are so pressing. So that's one kind of initiative I'm doing. I'm also, um, a little bit early in the works, but, um, I'm going to set up a kind of a freedom of speech society. And I think because that seems to be 
the most important thing in Western culture at the moment, um, because it's not just in journalism. We've seen freedom of speech die in academia, in kind of culture. You know, people are, are afraid to say certain things around each other. Right. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very people don't really understand how important it is. The fact that we don't have freedom of speech is actually kind of limiting our ability to um, to get at the truth. And so, so much of the discourse is just, you know, people actually live in lies and they're not aware that they're even living in lies. You know, if you're mm-hmm. born, if you know, you, you're, if you're born in this kind of generation, you, you, you won't have an understanding, because you don't have the understanding of history, you will kind of just take it for granted that this is the way the world is. So people will develop these worldviews that are inaccurate and then it's going to be kind of this disintegrating cycle unless we really have like a, a true appreciation of freedom of speech and the history and everything like that. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to do. It's, it's very ambitious at the moment, but uh, I okay. think it's the, it's the only... Another thing, maybe, I, I don't know, just throws it, have you considered like self-publishing a book perhaps that covers all this stuff? Like as you're getting these... Yeah, that's something that... That's, that's something you know, I'm... You sell. I'm I've thought I, I think there'd be a market for it, you know, because yeah, I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of my listeners know what you're talking about, and we just don't have the, you know, the access to the particulars. So yeah, yeah. You, that would be it'd be very marketable. Like, hey, remember the guy that <laughs> that resigned from Newsweek? He's got a book out that blows yeah. open the whole, you know. <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, like I've said in previous conversations with people, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I've got attention for this, but um, I don't think at the end of the day the story is about me and. As much as I, I would like to have a fancy book deal and make a bit of money, um, I think you know I'm I'm at the moment I'm kind of more focused on a, on a deep societal level. Right. Um, you know the West is I I, I sound like a crazy madman at the kind of trying to warn everyone of of the world right. going to crap, but uh, you know I think it really is serious, um, and we need to kind of start standing up to this. Mm-hmm. I, I think. If we survive this, then maybe a book deal in the future. But I think we really, you know, okay, democracy but just is to at be, risk. Just to be clear, though, I wasn't saying a book deal. I was saying you got to self-publish it. So that's... that's oh, the, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, the major publishers, are, we're not going to touch this guy. He's discredited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, is your podcast up and running yet or is that still yeah, in flux? So it's called Conversations. Uh, okay. And this is kind of the theme that we discussed a little bit of part of the thing I'm trying to get over is this inability of left and right to speak to each other. Sure. So it's it's a very kind of plain, it's non-controversial. Um, but the whole idea is to be able to sit with someone and just discuss with them as a human being. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're going to, and I'm going to have people that I disagree with on there. Um, right. Maybe at the beginning, not so much. It's more raising awareness of people mm-hmm. because part of this polarization process that's been taking place for so long is that voices that have genuine things to say have been pushed to the complete fringes and no one knows who they are. And some of these are really respected people. I mean, for example, take Seymour Hirsch, probably mm-hmm. the finest living American journalist and you know one of the finest journalists to ever exist. His opinion now is just completely ignored on everything, even though history has shown he's been right on pretty much everything he's ever written. He's just on the fringes now, and no one pays any attention to him. So it's kind of remind us what was it that he did recently that made him persona non grata? Okay, so he essentially was related to Syria. He um, Mm. he wrote several stories for the London Review of Books, which questioned the Obama narrative. Um, So. One of the things that he showed was that uh, intelligence officials in the United States knew that 
Assad's government wasn't the only ones with uh, with sarin gas, and the, uh, he also reported that the sarin gas that they found at these sites it didn't match the chemical signature of what we knew we knew that Syria had. So it must have come from a different source. And when Obama kind of gave his red line, uh, famous speech, right. and all uh, the following, you know, happenings there, it was he was essentially lying to say that. Yeah. Um, he and he also. Um, you know, he did a follow-up story about Syria, which had similar things. But also, he wrote about the the Osama bin Laden killing, and he essentially gave the America the actual true version of what took place. Mm-hmm. Um, he also exposed the My Lai massacre in Vietnam in nineteen seventies, and the Abu Ghraib torture. So, his 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 record is is spotless and. Mm-hmm. He's a Pulitzer. Okay, so but, but you're saying th- those were like his past hits, but you're saying the thing that now all of a sudden made him marginalized was basically accusing Obama of being a liar about Syria. Exactly. And it was funnily okay. enough, it was Bellingcat, this organization we've talked about, is the one that kind of started the smears of he's, oh, he's repeating Russian propaganda points. And, right, right. Um, but, you know, his, his journalism is second to none. Sure. So I want to speak to all those different people that, you know, I've, you know, because of former journalists, I've got a, a journalist that was formerly at The Nation, a journalist that, that was at The Economist, and, you know, they've all experienced these things in different stories. So I, I want to kind of discuss what their stories were and how they got to those things and what are the particular things. So, I mean, like an interesting example um, is that there's very strong evidence to suggest that the DNC leaks didn't come from Russia that they came mm-hmm. from a Democratic Party insider. And you see this often gets pushed off as a conspiracy theory. Sure, um, right. But in my brief looking, you know, looking at the situation, I don't, th- I think that um, it was very likely that it was a, it was a Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good example, how that in the American discussion, that's Seth just Rich, now, yeah. just, you know, like, set in stone that it came down from the heavens that, oh yeah, it's now confirmed the Russian government hacked into. And I, yeah, you're right. I one time went in to see, like, how do we know that? And I'm not saying I know what happened, but it was clear it the confidence with which people just assert that we know mm-hmm. that the Russians hacked into, like, no, we don't know that. There's a funny Especially video. if the Russians mean the Russian government. Yeah, there's a funny video actually with Cy Hirsch about this very issue mm-hmm. where, because I think it was 19 intelligence agencies had given an assessment that it was Russia. And you see Hirsch kind of, because he's got these deep connections, mm-hmm. just start laughing when he's told this because it's like right. the Coast Guard and the the Air Force and all of these people think that the Russia, that Russia was behind this hack. You know, these things, you know, what do, yeah. What does the Coast Guard know about signals from Russia and all these things? Right. Why? Why is it's? And then a week later, you never heard from these. You never heard anything about this report ever again. You know, mm-hmm. so it shows you how powerful propaganda is and how people need to start kind of being aware of propaganda and fighting yeah. back against it. Yeah, I think the main takeaway from a lot is just, is just because the U.S. or U.K. government, you know, some anonymous intelligence official says something to a major media outlet, you can't assume it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed yeah. that we have to say that. Like, that's contributing right now to point that out. <laughs> and I think we should probably go even stronger and say, if yeah. someone says something, we should probably 
take the opposite right. to be true. <laughs> yeah, so assume the opposite. There must be a reason they're telling us that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, well, that's probably a good point for us to wrap up here. So I'll certainly, I'll get the link for your podcast and, and put that on. Again, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 95. My guest has been uh, Tarek Haddad. Uh, Tarek, thanks so much for being with us and uh, good luck in the future. Cheers. Thank you so much. Look forward to speaking again. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.